Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com hello welcome don't Fast forward. Don't hit fast forward. We have some stop the presses or hold the presses, whatever it is, kind of news. Finally, we have moved forward with one of our many projects, and it is the first that is going to get us to all the other ones. Yes, listeners out there, those of you that have been following along, who have gotten value from this show, who have been part of it, you can now help support us. We are on Patreon, so you can head to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, and guess what? You can become a supporter of the show. Now, there's more information on the page. Again, that's patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. If you haven't heard of Patreon, well, one, where have you been? But two, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and it's a site where creators put their work and they put some added bonuses and and all types of things in there uh, in return for your financial support. And we have done that. I'll just give you a sense of what we've got going on. So John and I, as we've alluded to, we have all these things that are, you know, in the works or half finished or half started, such as curated transcripts, eBooks, online courses, merch, all this stuff. And it's just tough because it takes money and we need help and we try to outsource some, maybe it's on Upwork or something, but 
it's just a struggle. And we've always felt it's kind of holding us back. Of course, we have some ads that do help pay the bills, but that's about it. And so in our most recent newsletter we sent out, a lot of people responded and say, hey, look, we want to support you. We want more. Because, yeah, we've been doing this for eight years, but it's time to take eight years of information, 300 plus episodes, and distill it down into actionable, enjoyable pieces of content for you. And so that is just one thing that your support will help us do. So over at Patreon, we've set up four levels. Each has some really cool perks. Uh, The levels range from $2 to $25. And at that top level, we've got some really great stuff, including things like ad-free episodes, access to our private Discord community. If you don't know what Discord is, I'm sure we'll be telling you a little bit more about that. Monthly video chat with uh, me and or John. And some more things to come, including we will be having guests video chat directly with our patrons. Now, that's going to come a little further down the line. There are some goals there, very similar to kind of Kickstarter-esque. So if you are familiar, great. If you're not, head over. It'll take a few minutes. But regardless of what level you support us at, we are so appreciative. And even if you, you can't support us, the show will always remain free. And we will still put in our blood, sweat, and tears to make it better. So that is patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Moving on. Yes, I was excited for Patreon, but I have to tell you, our guest this week, I recorded this episode weeks and weeks ago, maybe two months ago, actually, and I could not wait to bring this to you. I had to wait this long because of when her book came out and kind of some of our scheduling. But I just know the kinds of shows that resonate with everyone, and this is one of them. Oh, and by the way, the book that this author wrote may have been one of the fastest reads I've done in years. And what I mean by that is I just did not want to put it down because it's so unique and so intriguing. Okay, so who is it? What are we talking about? This week on the show, we have Dr. Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author. She writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. She's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. She writes for The New York Times. She's been on The Today Show. She's been everywhere. But here's the coolest part. She is a legit psychotherapist with an active therapy business. And in this episode and the book that we're talking about, we get to peek behind the curtain. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to this review from Washington Post about Lori's book, which, by the way, is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. So the Washington Post said this, provocative and entertaining. Gottlieb gives us more than a voyeuristic look at other people's problems, including her own. She shows us the value of therapy. And now I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but that's why this was a page turner. The book is this amazing web of stories, real life stories about Lori's clients in her therapy business. But at the same time, Lori talks about her experiences with the therapist she sees, because yes, all therapists have therapists. Look, there's so many things about this book, this interview, 
that I enjoyed. But at the core of it, it's this. We are all human and we go on and we go out into the world and we put on our armor and we deal because it can be a tough place. But behind closed doors, everybody has problems and everybody wants to talk about them, to talk to someone, to find sanity in this insane world we have created. And this book shows that humanity. It shines a light on some of our problems and some of the ways we work through it. And you find yourself not just rooting for the people in the book, but identifying with what you read and what you hear. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to this interview with Lori. Also, you can find more about her at her website, lorigottlieb.com. She is also on Twitter at lorigottlieb1. Before I let you go, I realized that this intro is longer than the three minutes I promised. That might be a theme for the near future, just as we get the word out about the Patreon page. I promise it won't reach these levels, though. I hope you don't mind. Thank you all for your incredible emails for reaching out to us. I do have some listener stories I want to share, uh, but with this intro being long already, I figured I'll save them for next week. Here it is, our interview with psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb as we talk about her brand new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Enjoy. Lori, well, thank you so much for being on Smart People Podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So it's kind of just letting you know, I I got sucked into your book. And I mean, look, it's it's not a short book, right? It's a little intimidating, but man, was it an incredible read. And so I'm excited to share this with all of our listeners, but I like to kind of start off with a tease and I want to start here. Everyone always wants to be a fly on the wall in other people's therapy. And I'm wondering why you wrote it. Like why let us in to yours and your patient's inner room, if you will. Yeah, that's such a great question. And uh, especially the part about why would I let people into my own therapy room as a patient, which, um, you know, is pretty unusual. And I think I did that because I felt like one of the things that people don't think about that much when they're sitting in therapy is that they're, they're working with a real human being. And we have our own life experiences that are probably the most useful tool that we can bring to helping them. And so I wanted people to see that, that, you know, the life of a therapist and what, you know, what we go through as well. And so I think there are kind of two tropes of therapists. There's like the very cold therapist who, you know, kind of just nods and you're almost like talking to a wall and which is nobody wants to talk to a wall. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I think the other one is sort of the crazy therapist who doesn't have her life together. And, you know, um, Hmm. you know, like the, the therapist who's crazy and, 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 you know, sort of can't keep it together outside of the therapy room. And neither of those is really what most therapists are like. Most therapists are just like you and me. And, um, and so I wanted people to see that, interplay of how what happens to me as a patient informs what how I help people mm. as a therapist. And I think the other reason that I that I wrote the book was that I wanted people to see just, you know, our our humanity. 
Um, you know, the people, the patients that I that I write about in the book are are four very, very different people. They're different ages, different genders, different problems, different life situations, um, different personalities, very much so. Um, but I think that everybody can find a piece of themselves in these people, mm-hmm. which is which is what I wanted people to see. Yeah, and you do such a good job of that. Actually, there's some specific examples that I'll probably bring up in this episode that really hit home for me and was part of the value that you get out of this book. Early on in reading this, you know, I think everybody feels vulnerable about telling their story, but I think most people aren't as judgmental as we imagine them to be. And I want to ask you how difficult it was to write about your struggle, you know, with the the relationship falling apart and things like that and how vulnerable you felt in putting this out into the world. I think very vulnerable. Um, And at the same time, it would be kind of disingenuous of me to portray myself in just a positive light, um, you know, when that's just not the reality of most people's lives. Most people are, you know, so, they're they're so complex. Um, And I think the other thing that I really wanted to show in terms of the vulnerability was we all have blind spots. And one thing that a therapist does is to hold up the mirror and say, hey, look at this reflection and not in a, in a, not to look at pathology or not to feel shame, but to say, look at this, look at the way you're shooting yourself in the foot. And if you can see that without judging yourself, without criticism, without self-flagellation, if you can see that, you will open up a whole new world because so many of our problems are of our own creation, meaning, yes, there are circumstances, there are things out in the world, but how we react to them is our choice. Mm. And, and sometimes we can't see what we're doing and we can't see that all of the different ways that we're, we're self-sabotaging and creating more difficult circumstances for ourselves, especially in relationships. And I, I say that meaning any relationship. So with your children, with your parents, with your partner, with your friends, with your coworkers, sure. you know, what are these relational difficulties and what are these blind spots? And so I think I had to be really vulnerable because I came into therapy with one story about, you know, how this breakup occurred and the therapist kind of, you know, called me on it and said, you know, that may all be true, but there's also this. Right. Which which seems to be the the magic, if you will, of a good therapist. And one thing I'll talk about is the fact that finding good therapist is a is a momentous, you know, challenge in the first place. But we'll get there. The reason I was asking about vulnerability is because, you know, you you write very honestly and clearly about yourself, but in reading it, no part of me read what you wrote and felt you were any less capable any less of an expert, any less anything. And so I was wondering, from your perspective, were you worried about people's judgment? And then from somebody reading it, do you hear often like, hey, your story's so normal, it's you're human, no judgment here? Yeah, I mean, I think that therapists, um, you know, it's weird to think of your therapist as sort of a civilian. Yeah. And there's even a, a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters about, um, which you may remember about, you know, what it's like when people see their therapist <laughs> out in the world and certain things we sort of can't do out in the world that somebody who's not a therapist can do, you know, without any, without worrying about a patient seeing them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a funny chapter, but it's also very true. And I think that the same is true 
here, I think that on the one hand, I think that when people see me in the therapy room, hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, it's almost like a vicarious therapy session that they will, they will, they will see a way in which I'm helping the patient that also helps them. That I think that people will walk away from this book and say, oh, I'm seeing all these things about myself that I didn't know, even though that patient is different from me. But I think the other side of it is that they might see me as almost like the way you would see your friend, right? Which is, oh, I can understand why this woman is going through these experiences and it doesn't make her an incompetent therapist. It just makes her a person who is also having, you know, her own struggles. Right. And I love how you were saying where you are any given day is also what you're going to bring to that therapy session. And that's, you know, that's an interesting way to think of it because some could say, and and I believe you referenced an old school of thought where therapists should should at the door like leave every part of themselves. I, I and I I remember you writing about that, but you kind of talk about hey this is this is part of what it is and potentially it could be a useful part because we get to experience things together and differently each time. Exactly. I mean, I think the things you have to bring into the room are your humanity. You have to be a real person in that room. Um, you have to bring your compassion into that room. It's not the kind of job, you know, if I'm, so I'm also a writer. And so when I'm writing, I can think about like 20 other things, right? I can be like, oh, what's on Twitter? Or what am I going to eat for lunch? Or, you know, what, or what, what time do I have to pick my child up? I can think about all of those things. But when I'm in the therapy room, it is so focused. Like you are, you're not thinking about those other things. You're really bringing in, I am connected with this person in a really profound way and you have to bring your a-game into that room on the other hand you're a person right did you get enough sleep the night before um you know is your parent in the hospital what are what else is going on in your life that also determines what that what that 50 minutes is going to be like right so both of those things are true you know you touched earlier on what therapy is really in a in a quick minute i wanted to talk a little bit more about that because there's many people that Yes, have gone to therapy. Many that haven't are considering it. I think your book gives some good insight on what it is. And when you talk about your style versus your therapist, you know, what do you see the primary job as? And when do you feel you have accomplished it as a therapist? Right. So first of all, no two therapists are the same. And that's that's different from maybe going to a cardiologist or, you know, a dermatologist where, you know, it's the same training and they do the same thing. And maybe their bedside manner is different, but ultimately you're not necessarily there for the bedside manner. You want the person who's going to fix your heart. Um, here, um, you know, everybody is very different. I think there are people who have similar theoretical orientations or similar ways that they work. But when I went to go see Wendell, it was very interesting. As a, as a patient, I couldn't be the backseat driver and say, no, 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 I would do it this way. <laughs> um, you know, I had to be a patient in that room. I had to let go and not have my therapist hat on. And I think that his style was so different from mine in a lot of ways, and I learned a lot from him. So, And in fact, I would literally, he'd say something in the room, and then I would drive to my office, and then I'd see a patient, and I would repeat verbatim something that he had said to me, almost like Cyrano. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it would be generally very effective um, because it had resonated so strongly for me. But he really brought himself into the room. He brought his personality into the room. He was, you know, he was, he was really... It's kind of like he was following all of the rules you need to follow in terms of um, being very strategic about how much of yourself you're going to bring in the room. 
But when he did, it was very genuine. And I think that that sense of genuineness freed me up to just be more of myself in the room and not think of myself as I have to be um, whatever stereotype one might think of as sort of the therapist who doesn't, you know, who makes sure that she is not in the, in, in the room in that way. I think a big part of what we do is bring ourselves into the room. And so I, it really, it really changed the way that I did therapy. And you can see that evolution in the book where Mm -hmm. I loosen up a lot because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a much newer therapist, um, in the, at the time of the book than he is. And so it's almost like I'm being mentored at the same time that I'm getting therapy. There's a line in the book and you say, in therapy, we aim for self-compassion versus self-esteem. And that was something that really stuck with me so much. So I highlighted it, then I started and then I just sent myself an email. So I remembered to mention it to you. <laughs> now it's on your wall. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about that. Tell me why that's something you feel you try to bring with you into your, in, into um, when you're the therapist. I think that we are so hard on ourselves. And I think that having compassion for yourself is different from self-esteem. Self-esteem is, I'm great, I'm amazing, I'm fantastic. That's self-esteem. I think that there's a lot of the false self in self-esteem. I think that self-compassion is, I'm fallible and that's okay. Um, I need to look at, at the things that I'm doing in a way that is gentle so that I can change them. And if you can't be gentle with yourself, if you're judging yourself, if you, if your self-esteem, which I think self-esteem is a more sort of fragile thing, um, self-compassion is unlimited. It doesn't mean, self-compassion, by the way, doesn't mean give yourself a pass. It doesn't mean you can be a jerk in the world, right? Self-compassion means I can see myself clearly and I'm okay with myself and I'm okay. I'm going to do something about it. Mm. So you want to be, it's, it's really about kindness. It's how would you treat your friend? If your friend, if you saw something in your friend that she needed to know, how would you talk to her about it? You wouldn't be like, you're, you're a failure. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to her that way, but we, our inner voices are so loud and they don't stop. They're going constantly. They're running sort of like a screensaver in the background. You know, they're just running all the time. And can we change those voices so that we're kinder to ourselves? The kinder we are, the more we're able to change. Mm. You mentioned being a new therapist. Through this book, you talk about your numerous experiences. I mean, you talk about med school. You talk about um, when you were working on big TV shows that we're all aware of. And you do it in seemingly such a positive tone. I mean, you're going to have to, people are going to have to read the book to learn more, but you basically just leave med school. You were going to Stanford, by the way, right? And you're like, no, not for me. And you're working on the show Friends and you're like, no, not for me. Were you freaking out at these times or is that just part of you? You're always like, I'll be fine and I'll get to my happy place at the end. Yeah, no, that's definitely not me. I think that's not a lot of people. Um, no, I mean, these were hard decisions, but I think that, you know, one of the things I was trying to show in, in maybe you should talk to someone is that um, all of these different careers, which seemed really unrelated to one another, added up to exactly where I am now. So if you think about story, People come in with stories. My job is all about hearing stories all day and then editing those stories. 
So when people come into the therapy room, I'm not just listening to their story, but I'm listening to their flexibility with the story. Are, is that the only version of the story? You know, does the, is the protagonist going in circles or is the plot moving forward? Are they telling the same story over and over? Who are the main characters and who are the minor characters? And maybe some of that needs to change. Maybe some characters need to be written out altogether. So I think that, you know, as humans, we, we make sense of our world through story. So when I was working on television shows at a network, um, I was telling stories, right? But I was telling fictional stories. Then when I was in medical school, I was seeing real stories. But I didn't feel like I, I could have the, the, the human story in the way that I wanted to, given sort of the medical model and, and, and how, that was, how that was working, Right. And then, you know, when I later, when I became a writer, I was really involved in people's stories in this very intimate way, but I didn't feel like, I was more like telling their stories as opposed to helping them change their stories. So I would recount their stories, but I couldn't really help them change their stories. And when I became a therapist, I was able to kind of marry all of those different elements, which is hearing stories, telling stories, helping people change their stories. Because stories are really sort of like the food of life. That's, how, that's how, we, how we interact with one another, and it's how we make sense of ourselves to ourselves, too. We have all of these stories about our lives, and that's how we make sense of ourselves. But sometimes we have faulty narratives. Sometimes those stories, they're either stories that are old and they need a rewrite, or they're stories that just don't really make sense, even though it's, it's the story we've clung to all of our lives. So I feel like now, as a therapist and also as a writer, and I write also the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. So I, I, I use all of those elements in the various ways that I, that I hope that I'm helping people. Well, and as you were making all these transitions, you, you couldn't have, and you mentioned, you couldn't have known where it was going, but you do feel like now it all makes sense. Do you ever remember being kind of racked with self-doubt? And, and if so, how do you handle it? And even more importantly, how do you handle it with your current patients? I think that you have to have two things going on at the same time, which is sort of like the, the pr- being okay in the process of what's happening because you will figure out, um, you know, I don't, think that there's one, I, I don't think there's one destination that people are getting to. And so you can't say, especially because, and this is going to sound a little um, maybe morbid, but, you know, I think that a lot of people don't think about the fact that we have a limited time on the planet. And so, and, and, and I think it's really healthy to think about that. It's not a scary thing. I think the more that you can be aware of your limited time here, the more that you will take advantage of, of your time here. And that means, you know, in terms of your relationships, in terms of what gives you meaning, in terms of your career, in terms of all of the things that really matter, you'll pay more attention to them. And so, if you think that there's one destination that you need to get to, you're going to miss the journey. You're going to miss what's happening in the day-to-day, and that's really a loss. So I try to help people to focus on what's happening day-to-day and to be really aware in the day-to-day so they're not just skating through or they're not trying to fulfill some goal that maybe isn't theirs Mm. um, or that maybe, you know, is not really what they want to be doing. Mm. So there's that. And I think the other piece of it is as as you're going through that journey, action is really important. People put off action because they think that they have to make the quote-unquote right decision. So they just do nothing. They end up in analysis paralysis, and they say, well, I don't know if this is right. Should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? Should I do this 
take this job? Should I not take this job? Should I move to this city? Should I not move to this city? Should I have children, another child? Should I not have another child? Should I have children at all? You know, those kinds of things. Um, and they wait for the, the perfect moment. You know, it'll be, it'll be right when this happens. Um, when I have a house, when I have a child, when I have this job. And you're still living your life before you have that. So I think you have to take action and not just ruminate. So many people will ruminate forever, and then they will never take action. And one thing I often say to my patients is action begets action. You take an action. You make a decision. And once you make that decision, it will lead to something else. You may learn something about yourself and say, oh, you know, I learned that I actually don't like this. Um, you know, or I learned that, that actually it shows me what I do like. Or I learned that actually I was just terrified and this was exactly the right choice. And now a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Wix.com. Everybody needs a website. Whether you have a podcast, a blog, an online store, whatever it may be, you need an online presence. And what better way to get started online than with Wix.com? Getting started on Wix is super easy. You can pick from over 500 design templates or start from scratch with their design editor. With Wix, you have total creative freedom. You can make your website personal, unique, and an original masterpiece. I'm currently working on a Smart People podcast site on Wix, and I'm going to walk you through the entire story throughout these ads. As we build the site, I'll talk to you about it, and when it's ready to launch, we'll point you to it. You can get started for free today at wix.com slash smart and apply the code smart, S-M-A-R-T, at checkout to get 10% off when upgrading to any premium plan. Again, head over to wix.com slash smart and use promo code smart. We want to see what you all build with Wix. So if you build a website, email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know the link. We'll take a look at it and maybe even talk about it on the next podcast. So get started building your free site with Wix today and head over to Wix.com slash smart and apply the code smart to receive 10% off when upgrading to a premium plan. And now back to the episode. Well, while we, while we are kind of in the therapy room, there are a number of questions I have just on therapy in general or you being a therapist. One of them is... You do such a great job in the book of of walking us through your thought process. So you have a patient who says something and then you will tell us, you know, here's what's going on in my head. Here's what I ended up asking them. Here's what we call this, you know, as therapists, et cetera. But I'm wondering, how does that look or sound in your head in real time? Right. Because when it's in a book, you've had time to, to write it and edit it and think about it. But therapists have to be doing so much dancing in their head and make it not only seem normal and natural, but eventually it, it will be normal and natural. How are you doing your job in the moment in such a complex and ambiguous environment? Yeah, it's, there's a lot going on. And it's, I, I think that I'm glad you saw that because it's, it's, it's hard to understand that we're not just having a conversation that there is a lot going on, and it's really hard. I think that, that therapy is hard work for patients in a lot of ways, right, because they, they, 
they really have to work. It's not like you come for an hour, you tell the stories of the week, and you leave. That would be a waste of your time. It's that you have to work not only in the room, but also during the week in between sessions and put into practice what we've been talking about. And that's good therapy. Um, but I think that for the therapist, there is a lot of work going on too. And, um, you know, in the book, I very much kind of demystify what's going on in my head. And I'll tell people I'm thinking this, or this is what's happening. Or when he said this, this is why I decided to do this. Um, or here's how I felt when he said this, but I said this instead. So a lot of times, like, I might have a reaction to something, but I'm going to hold that for later because the person isn't ready to hear it, or I know that they'll be defensive and it will they will take they will hear it in a way that that I won't be able to get in there. Um, other times I will purposely bring something up, even though it might be a little bit early because I feel like they they I have to cut through and I have to get in there. So there there's a lot going on, and I I, I think that that um, that I I hope that it explains it so that people aren't. You know, I think people really wonder certain things about being in therapy, like, am I boring my therapist? Um, you know, <laughs> um, what, what is he or she thinking? And as I say in the book, you know, the boring patients are not the patients who tell you what seem like, you know, unremarkable, you know, details of their lives. The, the boring patients are the ones who, who won't let you into their lives, mm. who tell the same story over and over or go off on numerous tangents when you're trying to focus them on something. They're the ones who keep you at bay. If, the, if people keep, even in regular, you know, just normal relationships, when you're talking to somebody, don't you find that if they just kind of like kind of keep you out, that the conversation is very boring. Right. You're very bored in their presence. Well, and spoiler alert, that was you for your first couple of sessions with Wendell, right? more than a couple yeah 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 it was like it was like you know and I and I I you know I, I very much make fun of myself because I, I I think it's you know it's funny in retrospect to say like oh my god I was that patient mm -hmm. you don't realize it because you know you think oh no I'm I'm so insightful I'm a therapist so I I know exactly what's going on here I hadn't a clue what was really going on there right and and that's the beauty of sort of being the patient and and being able to kind of look back in hindsight and say wow, Wendell was extremely um, effective with me in cutting through my my defenses. Right. Well, and that was the second thing I wanted to ask, because when people are in this mode of, look, I'm in a story and it's it's intense and it's real for me. Oftentimes you talk about just sitting with the person. And, and actually, there's a number of times in the book where you talk about how intense that can be, how necessary and how often we do it in therapy, but not in the real world. I was really interested in this concept because I can see how just sitting with someone is really awkward for most of us. So my question really is, how do you do that? Like, what are your recommendations for those of us who oftentimes will, um, will, will be in a situation where somebody just wants to be heard? You know, how do we sit with them and just be and not think about, oh, I need to do this, I need to solve this, I need to comfort them this way. I think people really want to be understood. And so much of our conversation is, is very quick. We're, you know, we respond to people. If you hear your friend in distress, you want to help that person. You want to fix it. You want to give them advice. Um, and and what, what's missing from that is that sometimes what people really need is someone to just sit with them in their pain. So to really sit with someone 
you know, I talk about my first, my very first patient, which was sort of a disaster. I thought it was a disaster. Um, you know, they put you, it's, it's, it's interesting because in medical school, they have this, this, uh, this saying, see one, do one, teach one. So, you know, you see someone, you know, you see someone put in an IV, right? And then you do one yourself with supervision and then you teach one to the next person. And, and that's sort of the idea of, of medical training. Um, in, in therapy, you're thrown into a room, like you, you've, you've had all of your, you know, you've gotten all sort of the, the academic part of it, but, and you've done maybe role plays or you've watched sessions, but you haven't actually been the person alone in the room with that other person. And you do this at training clinics. And my first patient who came in, you know, was this woman who immediately started crying. And I don't mean crying like some tears were forming and then, you know, she's telling a story. I mean, she was just, it was like a tsunami. And I was so uncomfortable because I didn't, I hadn't had practice sitting there with someone in her pain. And all I wanted to do was make her feel better. And so it's a very sort of comical um, chapter in the book because then there's no batteries in the clock and I don't know what time it is. Hmm. And I don't know how much time I have left in the session. But, but I, I was able to sit with her because naturally that's sort of what I ended up doing. And then I thought that I had screwed up the session. I thought, oh boy, I didn't help this woman at all. But in fact, she felt so much better because she was able to say out loud, I have been so depressed and, and nobody knows this. Nobody knows how depressed I've been. And she was able to just cry in there and everything she had been holding back. And I was able to be there with her for that. Yeah. So I think that our, our inclination is to, you know, as people is to, because we, we have compassion for that person, we have empathy and we want to help them. But sometimes the way that you can help someone is to make them feel heard and seen and understood. Yeah. The, the company I work for, we talk a lot about communication skills and it's you know, we need to start listening with the intent to understand versus the intent to respond. And, you know, in those certain cer circumstances where it's highly charged, which is what you're dealing with all the time. The other thing you mentioned, though, is your job. You, you want to help people in whatever way they present themselves. And oftentimes you're many steps ahead of them. And that makes perfect sense. My question, though, is if you're that many steps ahead of them, how have you trained yourself and how can we as just people train ourselves to not just solve the problem for them, right? To not just be like, hey, look, in two months, you're going to come back and this is going to be your problem. So let me just save you that two months. Boom. <laughs> here's what you do. Like, because that's what I think so many of us do want to say. Yeah. So um, it's sort of like timing and dosage, right? So there's the timing of it and then how much you want to give of that thing. So we kind of um, plant seeds along the way so that, so that it's not, um, you know, you, you have to be able to kind of like plant the seeds and let them be ready before they're going to they're gonna sprout. And the same thing with people. So, um, you know, I might see, you know, just like Wendell, my therapist, he, saw, he was way ahead of me. Um, and, and he got in there sort of quickly with me, but then when I pushed back, he held off. So you can see in that first session, I'm like, what are you smoking? Yeah. Like, no, that's not my problem. And, you know, I came to you for help and this is sort of a crisis. And, you know, I was angry and, um, you know, and then he backed off as, 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 you know, because I was not ready. He, he sort of assumed I would be ready and then I wasn't. And we make mistakes like that all the time. I make mistakes like that, you know, every day. Um, 
but with more experience, you get used to it. And it's okay if you make a mistake and you can talk about the mistake in the room. So, um, you know, as opposed to in my first session when I was mortified about having made a mistake or having thought that I made a mistake. The last thing as it as it relates to kind of being in the therapy room, I, I have to talk about is sex. And the reason yeah. is there's two points in this book that I was like, man, I love my job because I get to talk to the author. The first one. And like, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But it's in the book. You basically <laughs> you are going to have sex with a guy like to have a baby, but you were cool with that. Can you explain that situation to, to people listening? Because and the guy eventually like opts out of it. To me, if somebody was like, hey, you seem cool. I just want you to have sex with me. I, I feel like it takes a strong man to say, no, this isn't this isn't my thing. Right. So I didn't it wasn't that I wanted to have sex with him. Right. Although, you know, it was it was I was I was I was wanted to have a baby and I wanted to find a donor. And, you know, I, I talk in the book um, about that process and coming to that decision and, you know, and then looking for a donor through a sperm bank and then having that fall through so many times because of availability um, that um, that I, I, I was, you know, my my biologically, I didn't have a lot of time. And so I couldn't just keep waiting if I wanted to have a child um, that way. And so, um, and so I, I asked somebody, <laughs> you know, and I think when you get, de- I think desperate, you know, it's one of those desperate measures situations when I think, you know, people will do lots of things when they feel desperate. And, and if, if you've ever known people who really, really, really wanted to be a parent and mm-hmm. really wanted to have a baby and the, the, the things that they thought they would never do or never resort to all of a sudden that's right there in front of them. And, and I deal with that a lot with therapy patients where, you know, you see couples and they come in and they really want a child and they've tried this and they've tried that. And it just, they, they start to go a little bit, you know, you have to sort of talk them off the ledge so that they can sort of think about what they want to do, but also not waste time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was the situation I was in. And I think that until you're in that situation, you can't understand the obsession and, and how much, you know, what you'll do, what you're willing to do to make this happen. Yeah. And, and that's sort of, you know, where I was at that point in my life. And, you know, thank God, because I have this beautiful child. Um, but, um, but, you know, so when I, when I asked him, it wasn't, it wasn't about having sex with him. Um, it was about sort of how were we going to make it happen? And, but I do, you're right. There is a lot about sex that comes up in the therapy room. And I think that anyone who does couples work, as I do, if they don't talk about sex, they're missing, you know, a a whole dimension of the relationship. So a lot of new therapists are are afraid to talk about sex, but it's it's really important to get people comfortable, to get people in the room comfortable Sure. because, you know, it's hard to talk about sex. It's hard to talk about sex, not only with your partner, but also with, with this person that you come to see once a week. So sex comes up with not just couples, but individuals. And, you know, in the book, we talk about like the John yeah. uh, patient in the book where, you know, he's talking about his wife all the time. And I ask him about his sex life and, you know, he has, he has the reaction he has, right. um, but he does, but he does end up opening up about it. And it becomes very important that we do talk about it. This week's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. 
BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Smart People Podcast listeners, you get 10% off your first month with the discount code SMART. That's S-M-A-R-T. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com smart. Simply fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again. That's betterhelp.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Well, and that was the second part, actually, that exact thing you were talking about. The reason I brought up the first is, again, not a judgment thing. The way you state it in the book is so pragmatic. It was just, you know, okay, I want a kid. This guy checks all the boxes. So I go meet with him. And then I think it was the first time you met with him. You kind of threw it out there. And I'm just thinking, man, this this woman is on fire. Like she knows exactly what she wants. She's going to ask, not afraid. And it just seemed like a recurring theme that you, and I, I don't know, maybe it's your background and your education. Like you seem kind of straight forward, straight shooting. Okay. With it. And I just didn't know. Not at all. No. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, I think you can see all of my, you know, my, my dilly dallying and my back and forth around how hard it is for me to make decisions. Yeah. And I think the struggles and the terror and the fear of, of what these decisions would mean. And, you know, even when I get to the cafe, I almost back out because I'm mortified by what's about to happen, but I also want this baby. And yeah. so it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I think that I'm very much not that person of, um, you know, I don't know who is. I really don't know people who, you know, maybe they're like CEOs of companies who are like that. I don't know. But, Me either. That's um, why I most... was like, you see people. So maybe, you know, th- that was one of the beauties of your book. And this this next section that I want to talk about about John, too, is you. I, I feel like more people need to know what's going on in more people's lives so we can all understand the reality of humanity as opposed to the the fake social media or, or the undiscussed parts that are happening. That's what your right. the gift of your book is. Right. Well, I, you know, I say at one point in the book that, you know, we're all, you know, the decisions we make are all driven by two things, fear and love. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those two things are always, um, you know, play into why we do what we do. And I don't even mean, just mean the big decisions in life, but I also mean, you know, how we how we talk to somebody about something, um, the the reaction we have, um, you know, the the people in the book. When you think there's like you know this twenty something who keeps sort of getting in the wrong relationships and <laughs> can't figure out why, and then you have like you know somebody who's very happily married but she's dealing with a terminal diagnosis, and you have you know like an older person who's estranged from her children, and you know you have all these different people who have all these different choices they have to make on a daily basis about how they're going to be in the world. And 
that's really what I think we all want to find a way to be at peace in the world as much as we can, even though being a person is hard. It's just, it's just a fact. Being a person is a hard, it's hard to be a person. And then we, and then we immediately quash that by saying, oh no, but look, I have a roof over my head. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, um, you know, like there are all these things that we have that we call, you know, hashtag first world problems. Right. Um, but I don't think that they're first world problems. I think that the things that we struggle with are very real because it is hard to, you know, life can be hard. And even when it's easy, it will become hard at another point. Nobody gets a free pass. And well, and it's so, you know, that's, again, what motivated me to just mow through this book. And I really enjoyed it is it's this perfect mixture of storytelling, reality, education, etc. And then kind of allowing people into what is real world and and seeing other people's problems, which along those lines, I wanted to ask you, one, how did you cope with or when you write a book like this, how do you deal with patient privacy? Because I'm, I'm assuming these are semi real stories. And of course, I'm assuming you change a lot of the identifying characteristics. But do you have to go get uh, permission or how's this work? Right. So I explained that at the beginning of the book because they think oh, I missed that part. I totally to missed feel... that. <laughs> oh, there's a there's an author's note at the beginning of the oh, book. Oh, where oh I, okay. I way described that. Okay. Um, but who reads the author's note? Right. right <laughs> so I'm glad you asked because uh, you know probably a lot of people will skip the author's note. Um, but I did want to explain that, um, and I thought it was really important because I think people need to feel really safe when they come to therapy and. Um, you know, people know I was I was a journalist for a long time before I became a therapist, and um, people know that I still write. And so, um, you know, people know that in my informed consent, that um, while I will protect their identity, that I might write about things that go on in the therapy room. So, in the in the book, um, you know, I I was very very careful to change anything that would identify people, but the stories are real. Okay, and the the other thing along those lines is. What's your, and I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but what's your process like? Because there's so much detail. And as somebody who, as I mentioned, is trying to write a book as well, I, I, I read yours and I go, oh man, I could never do that. I mean, the, the detail and the, the, the way it flows and okay, it's your thought process. It's the setting, it's the people. I was just curious what your process is like. Well, as you know, in the book, um, it was a struggle. Um, I was writing a book. I was supposed to be writing a book that I didn't want to be writing because I just, I couldn't write it. I couldn't write that book. Mm -hmm. And, and I, every day I would sit in front of the computer and not write my book. And, um, and I was ashamed of it. And I say in the book, I was like, you know, the closet gambler who, you know, kisses their spouse goodbye and like they're going to work every day and then, you know, goes to the casino instead of the office. You know, everyone would say, "How's your book coming? How's your book coming?" And I'd say, "You know, it's it's fine, it's coming." Uh, but I was not writing at all, um, and it was such a struggle, and I had so much shame around that, and I felt like such a failure because, you know, I just could not write that book, and I didn't realize until I mean, I realized, and that was part of what I write about in this book that we all do this. It's like we have the answers, we have the answers, but we don't see them. We don't hear them. And so my answer was, I, this is not the book for me to write. I don't want to write this book. And every time I would hear that, I would push it away and say, oh, but you have to, because you have to put a roof over your head and you have a child to support and you have a book contract and this will be a disaster. And your agent is saying it's going to be a disaster and you must write this book. And I never 
would give any air to my voice that was saying, wait, do I? Why do I have to write this book? Mm. Is somebody going to die? Like, can, you know, <laughs> like, I don't have to write this book. And there's another way to put a roof over our head. And, you know, I need to listen to that voice. And so, um, you know, there are very real logistical problems, and it was a very real logistical problem and a very big financial problem. But at the same time, I think sometimes we think that we're trapped and we're not really trapped. And there's that great metaphor that, that my therapist gives me about, he said, you remind me of this cartoon where there's a prisoner shaking the bars, but then on the, on the left and the right, the bars are open. And so many of us are like that, right? Where we're like shaking the bars, trying to get out. But all we have to do is look to the right or left and see it differently, and we can walk right around those bars and be free. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that that was when you ask about my process. Once I started writing this book, it was it was it was very um, cathartic. Mm. It was a great experience, and I feel like that comes across in the book. I feel like you know. I'm really, I'm really me in this book, and, and I, I, I hope that that's what people connect with. Well, I think they will. I certainly did, and, and I'm really thankful not only that you wrote it, but that you came on and talked about it. Again, the book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. Lori, thank you so much for being on. Before we let you go, um, you mentioned you write for The Atlantic. Anywhere else that, you know, are you active on social or what would you recommend? Because I love your style. I mean, if I could go to therapy with you, like I would be your patient, but you you're far away. So, um, <laughs> you know, how do we find you? Where do you write? Right. Tell us more. Right. So um, so I, I write a weekly column called Dear Therapist. It's an advice column. And if anybody wants to write in, they can write to dear.therapist at theatlantic.com. Um, and that's where they can submit letters. And that appears every Monday in the Atlantic. And um, I write for other publications as well, the New York Times and other magazines. Um, so they can go to my, they'll always find what I'm doing on Twitter, which is at Lori Gottlieb one. And they can also go to my website where they can see what I'm up to, which is at uh, Lori Gottlieb.com. Perfect. Well, we will, of course, link to all of those and the book. Maybe you should talk to someone. Lori, I've been looking forward to it. I was so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Another interview, another fantastic smart person. We really hope you enjoyed that episode with Lori Gottlieb. And as a reminder, Lori's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, is available at Amazon and at your local bookstore. And as a reminder, if you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please use our Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, I'm sure you've heard it before, but head over to iTunes and Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the show. And if you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're interested in signing up for the newsletter, you know where to do that. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned, and we will see you all next episode. <music>